listening to the Bill Sunday School Podcast. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, says this. Um, it's, it's Jesus it has, has resurrected from the dead. He's teaching his disciples. And verse 4 says this. It says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. Everybody say gift. Everybody say gift. Say, All right, Jesus says, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my fathers promised, which you heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then and skipping to verse 8, it's to talk about the Holy Spirit. It says, uh, verse 8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we do thank you. We praise you that, that you might give us understanding for, for interpreting the book of Acts. God, as we look at the Holy Spirit today, as we talk about Pentecost and the, the birth of the church, God, give us wisdom and insight into these passages. And, and most of all, God, allow our lives to be transformed with this knowledge. Don't, God, we don't want to just uh, seek knowledge for knowledge's sake, but we, we want our lives to be transformed because of you and your work inside of us. God, we praise you. We are excited to learn this morning, Jesus. And it's in your name. Everybody screamed. Amen. Pretty good screaming. Anybody like getting gifts? Anybody seriously like giving gifts more than receiving gifts? Seriously? I love getting gifts. <laughs> um, I, I guess I like giving gifts as well. But um, today we're going to talk about the gift of, uh, that, the, that the church received on the church's birthday. That's kind of where we're going today. If that confuses you at this moment, that's okay, because that's what we're going to spend the rest of today talking about. Um, but, but you can, if you wanted to give someone a gift, and many of you actually, honestly, I'm sure there's lots of you that like giving gifts better than receiving gifts, and that's kind of the Christian thing to do, and there's, there should be some more joy in giving than receiving, like uh, the Bible uh, talks about. But if, if you really want to give a gift and you're not sure how, um, you could always Google it, couldn't you? I mean, you can pretty much Google how to do anything. Like the other day, I was Googling how to rock climb. You could Google how to uh, deplunge a toilet. You could Google pretty much anything, and it'll show you how to do something. And so if you're not sure how to give a gift, you could Google it. I Googled it the other day, and on ehow.com, it says how to give a gift. Really, like how to give a really good gift. And, and so the question is, what should I give my girlfriend, um, etc.? And, and there's instructions. There's four points to the instructions. And the level of difficulty is difficult. You see that? Interesting stuff. But it said the four points were, no, were number one, never pick something regular or generic. It's a waste of time and money. Number two, the gift should reflect the relationship between you and that person. Number three, the gift should be carefully planned out, and it should be a gr- of great quality. Do not buy a gift on the way to seeing someone or at the last minute buy it a couple days before. And number four was kind of a practical advice. If it's for your boyfriend, girlfriend, romantic partner, you should get a gift that reflects the relationship. Whereas if it's for a friend or a family member, you should get, uh, give a gift that reflects their interest. That's how you give a gift, in case you didn't know. And so um, I, really like giving, uh, I really like giving gifts, but I really like receiving gifts as well. And uh, a few years ago was my golden birthday. Do you know what a golden birthday is? 
Do you? It's on the, if you don't know, it's the day that you were born. Like my birthday is August 29th. And so the day 29, when I turned 29 years old, that was my golden birthday. It's like the best birthday. It's like the most golden birthday. It's the best birthday ever. And uh, I was, t- we, I, was my, I think it was my first year of marriage with Erica. And I was telling her how much I liked uh, getting gifts and going on and on about my golden birthday, how it should be the birthday of all birthdays and no pressure or anything. Um, <laughs> but I was, I was telling her like, this, this gotta be a big deal. And she got me a really, really cool gift, um, that I'll tell you what it was in a minute, but kind of before I tell you what the gift was, uh, I, th- I thought I would play more into this analogy of the church and talk about how God gave a gift to the church on the church's birthday. And, and so that's kind of the theme, what we're going to talk about today. So before we talk about the gift that I got, um, let's talk about the book of Acts. We are talking about the book of Acts all this month. We have been talking about the book of Acts. We're going to continue this month. There's one more Sunday. And then, uh, kind of unprecedented, we are going to talk about the book of Acts again for another month, not next month, but the, the month of June so we're actually spending two months on the same topic, and that's to really get into the book of Acts, because I think there's so much there about salvation, the Holy Spirit, the church, etc., hermeneutics, exegesis, studying the Bible. And so that's where we're going with the book of Acts. If it seems like we're taking our time this month as we study, that's because we are. That's because we have two months to study this topic. And so uh, we're talking about the book of Acts. If you're new to the Mill Sunday School, we're not going to embarrass you or make you come up here or even raise your hand. Uh, all we want to do is welcome you. And so if you're new, thanks for being here. There are on the tables, there should be uh, first-timer cards. And if you fill one of those out, you could bring it to the very nice people as you leave, and they will give you a gift. It's like a CD from a mill. The mill is our main ministry on Friday nights. They, it's, it's like a worship CD from a Friday night. And of course, you are all are welcome to come to our Friday night meetings if you've never been because that's our main meeting. <gasps> Those are your announcements. Are you cool? Are you, are you ready to, to learn? Uh, so let's do a little review and then uh, of, of what we've been talking about just quickly. Um, if, you, if you're taking down notes, you could write down the terms exegesis, hermeneutics, because two weeks ago when we started the book of Acts, we talked about the importance of exegesis, hermeneutics, basically the question of, of, of reading the Bible as if it wasn't written to you, because it wasn't. It was written to people in the first century, mainly Jewish people in the first century, uh, early church Christians. And so it's not written to us, New Life Church 2011. It's written a long time ago to another group of people. And so we need to interpret it that way. Does that make sense to you? Anybody? Yes, okay. Just, just making sure you're out there. And so if it doesn't make sense, you could go back and re-listen to the podcast. But those are the big principles. Hermeneutics means uh, how, what does the passage mean? Exegesis, uh, what is it actually saying? And so we need to do that before we can just make interpretations for today. And so that you'll we'll hear some of those themes continually as we talk today. And then last week we talked about uh, there's Jesus, a picture of him as... Um, with a crown as a king because we talked about the kingdom of God and how the book of Acts is is about when the kingdom comes to earth 
what does that look like? Well, it looks like empowered people. It looks like when someone is crippled, they can walk. It looks like when someone is dead, they get resurrected. It looks like when, when bad stuff happens, it turns around to be good for the message of the kingdom. And so uh, last week's message was about the kingdom coming to earth when, when heaven and earth meet. And we talked about that last week. And finally, back to the story, back to today, as we talk about the gift that God gave us as the church on the church's birthday. Um, and the analogy that I was giving was my golden birthday, telling my wife Erica in our first year of marriage how much I liked uh, getting gifts and how important the golden birthday was and how I loved getting gifts and how this better be a good gift. No pressure, but it, I, I really like gifts. And so she got a really good gift. As looking back, as I was thinking this morning and throughout this week as preparing this message, I thought, and what's the best gift I ever got on a birthday? And I think it was my golden birthday. Erica got me a flight lesson. There we are in front of a plane hanging out. So she bought a flight lesson. So I got to drive. I guess you don't drive. I guess you fly. Excuse me. A plane. And so I got to fly a plane for like a half hour. Of course, not by myself with another dude. And you get to like, but I actually got to like take off. He's like, pull back now. And I pulled back and like, brown. we took off. And... Um, because she knows me. She knows I like learning things and new experiences, and it was something we got to do together. She sat in the back seat, and it was me and the, the pilot uh, in the front, and we got to fly around Colorado Springs, and that was pretty sweet. It was, it was meaningful. It was rememberable. It reflected me, my interest. It reflected our relationship because we got to do it together, and it was awesome. And so at Pentecost, this analogy back to us now, I think God gives us a gift that is meaningful and important and it lasts and the memory of that gift is still with us today. And in fact, the gift is still with us today. And so God, um, my thesis is that God probably read the ehow.com article on how to give a gift because God gave us a pretty good gift at Pentecost. (laughs) Lighten up everybody. I'm just, you know, I'm just... There's yeah, somebody slapping their knee. Thank you very much. Um, so Pentecost, if, if someone says Pentecost, uh, the thing, if you're familiar with the story, what you probably imagine is maybe something like this painting. Um, if you could see it from where you're at, there's little tongues on fire descending onto the people, onto the disciples, because that's what happens in the book of Acts chapter 2, this very strange and bizarre story that we'll, we'll talk about today and what it means and represents of, of tongues of fire descending on apostles and the disciples. And then they start speaking in unknown languages, but the people around them hear them as if they're speaking in their own language. That's kind of the short of the story. So I want to spend some time actually reading Acts chapter 2. And so if you have a Bible, you could turn um, in your own Bible to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read and spend a lot of time reading Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. And I think the, the question that I'll keep asking is, how would a first century Jewish, ancient Jewish person understand this ch- chapter or this passage or this word or this verse? And so um, here we go. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 My iPod is slowly doing weird things. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost came, comma, and we could stop right there and just ask, What is Pentecost? Everybody say, What is Pentecost? And an ancient Jewish 
person at the first century would know exactly what Pentecost is. Whereas us today, New Life Church, 2011, Mill Sunday School, we may or may not know what Pentecost is. So let's pause here in our reading and talk about Pentecost for just a second. And I have a picture of some wheat because Pentecost, does anyone know what the root penta means? Anybody? I hear it, but no one's confident to scream it. Five, yeah, or 50, the, like pentagon is the, the five-sided building. Uh, a pentagram is a five-sided shape. Um, and so the fi- penta means five. And so 50, Pentecost is actually 50 days after, does anyone know this? That'd be a harder question. 50 days after, I hear, I hear it, but no one's, it's not, it's, you're very, I hear it, but <laughs> now I'm hearing different answers. Passover, yes! Someone screamed it with authority. Yes, thank you. So it's 50 days after the Jewish holiday of Passover. Passover, if you remember back and get your mental gears grinding, Passover, it should be easy to remember because it's when the angel of death passed over Egypt and killed all the firstborn of Egypt, but not of Israel. And so it's kind of a gruesome holiday to be celebrating, but uh, it's a Jewish holiday that, that they got freed from Egypt, their captors, and they were freed from slavery. The angel of death passed over Israel, but uh, killed all the firstborn of Egypt. Pharaoh saw that. His own firstborn was killed. Let, let Israel go. And so they celebrate Passover. And then Penta, the 50 days after that, is Shavuot, the Jewish word for uh, the, the celebration of Pentecost, which is the feast of gathering the wheat. It's like the first fruits. It's like uh, the, 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 the celebration of God. Um, it's actually from the Jewish understanding, it's the celebration of when God gave to his people the law, when Moses descended upon from Mount Sinai to the people and gave the people the law. The Jewish people celebrate that. It's called Shavuot in Hebrew, um, but, but in the Greek, they called it Pentecost. And so that day, if you, you get your mental wheels turning, is when, the, so they were celebrating in Jerusalem the day in which God gave the law, which is so interesting that that would be the day in which God gave the Holy Spirit because we have certain passages in the Bible, like maybe some of you are familiar with Jeremiah chapter 30, starting in verse 3, that says the days, so this is Old Testament, this is prophecy of what's going to happen. Um, these are the, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. Pay attention, verse 33, this covenant I will make with the people at that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And we, as Christians, look back to that day of Pentecost when God gave the law or the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit gave us the law written in our hearts. Are you making the connection here? I know I just gave you a lot of random stuff, but it's, it seems to be tied together because the Jewish people at the very first Pentecost, or at least to us as Christians, they were just celebrating Shavuot, this Jewish celebration of celebrating the law being given. Here is this day in which the Holy Spirit descends on the early church, and the law is going to be written in their hearts because the Holy Spirit dwells with us. If you f- are following me, say, I follow you. Oh, okay, that's enough. All right, we'll move on then. Um, so going back, so all I read was like five words so far. 
Right? Five, yeah. No, six words. Anyways, uh, when the day of Pentecost came, and so now we kind of know what a Jewish early century person would know if they were reading this book, uh, comma, they were all together in one place. Why were they all together still in one place? Because Jesus told them, wait in Jerusalem until I come, and, and, and until I, I give the gift which my Father had promised. And so if you do the math, you know that Jesus died on Good Friday, Pentecost, or excuse me, Passover was on Saturday, the Sabbat, and then Jesus resurrected on Sunday, and then it says he spent 40 days with them. And so if you're doing the math, when Pentecost came, since Pentecost and Passover are 50 days apart, it had probably been nine days since Jesus ascended into heaven and said, wait for the gift. If, if my math is wrong, you can correct me later. But it seems to be that if I, the math is correct, they had been waiting nine days for this gift that, the, that God promised. And so there they all, all, are, all are in one place. In verse 2, suddenly a sound like blowing wind uh, of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Maybe like a tornado. I don't know. Just all a mighty blowing violent wind came into the house where they were sitting. And if you were an ancient Jewish person reading about wind, you would probably think about like the spirit and the wind. <coughs> and in fact, those two words, spirit and wind, are the same word in the Hebrew. The word is ruach, which, which is this idea that God's spirit came. And throughout the Old Testament, we have wind blowing at various times, filling, how, filling the temple or like the story of Elijah, the wind blew, and God's presence was in that, in that soft wind that came. And, and so that's how an ancient Jewish person would understand that verse. Um, moving on, verse 3. So the wind's blowing, they're waiting there, and then the wind starts blowing. Verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. And we'll stop there and just say, if, you, if you're ever confused about what does a tongue of fire look like, well, I'm not sure either. And I don't know that they were really observing something that they were really sure of what they were observing because they just said what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so I want to pause and think about that idea of the fire descending. And here's kind of a cheesy photograph, not a photograph, cheesy painting of uh, tongues of little pieces of fire like right above the disciples' heads. And I've never seen like a really good painting of Pentecost. I've seen really good paintings of the resurrection and Jesus on the cross. But the Pentecost thing is always either really cheesy or like if you look at the cover of the skillet, it's very iconic and just like little pieces of fire resting on the top of people's hairs. It's like, dude, is everybody's hair on fire? Like, no, that's the tongues of fire. And so I've never really understood like what that really was looking like. But if you were an ancient Jewish person reading the story and you read about fire descending, well, in your mind, um, things would probably be recalled back from the Old Testament, like the pillar of fire that led the Israelites. Or Elijah, when he set up an altar and said, if God is real, fire will come down and burn up this offering. And, and so fire came down and licked up the offering that was on the table, and that was the work of God. And so if you're reading as an ancient Jewish person, those stories from the Old Testament would probably come back to you and you're like, of course, fire. God is all about fire. And when he descends in power, usually fire or sometimes fire accompanies that, um, that the, the God descending. 
And, and if you're like, would a Jewish person really think about that? And I think, yes, they would, because they had the Old Testament. That's something they lived and breathed and read every single day, kind of like us with movies. <laughs> Don't you think, like, Americans know movies. We know our movies, right? And so if, one, if you're watching a movie and it has a, a literary allusion to another movie, you usually get it right away, don't you? You're like, oh yeah, that's the same scene as Shawshank. Or oh yeah, that's the same scene as this other movie, which brings your mind back to that other movie. Because we are movie experts, because we're Americans. But ancient Jewish people, they didn't have movies, so they had to be experts in something else. And they all had the Old Testament, so they were experts in the Old Testament, and the stories of the Old Testament, and the oral traditions. And so when you mention fire or a blowing wind filling up a house, they probably immediately thought, oh, that reminds me of another story that I once heard and that that my father told me and his father told him. And maybe we read it from the scroll um, every Saturday at synagogue. And so that's what they would think when when they imagined fire descending. They're like, oh, of course, the presence of God is showing up. And so it says that, that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5, we'll continue here and finish this passage. Now they were staying with them in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why was there a bunch of Jewish people from every nation in Jerusalem? Because they were celebrating Shavuot or Pentecost, that, that holiday. Uh, and then verse 6 says, When they heard this sound, the crowd, they, the crowd came together, in bewilderment, I should probably start using that word more often, um, they came together in bewilderment uh, because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. And it's this fascinating deal, this miraculous, really weird thing that individual people were speaking unknown languages to them, but the people, if you read the rest of the book of Acts, you find out there's at least 15 tribes and languages mentioned that those people heard in their own language, being spoken as the disciples were speaking in unknown languages. Truly a miracle if this, this gift of tongues was, was given. And so the question that I've kept asking, the question that I'll return to right now is, what do you think the, the, an early Jewish ancient person reading this story would think about when they read langu- about languages and understanding? Well, if, if they were reading the story, I bet that since they are familiar with the Old Testament, they would probably recount the story of Babel. Yeah, the, the Tower of Babel. It's, if you want to read it for yourself, it's a very interesting, weird little story, and it, weird to me at least, in, in the book of Genesis chapter 11, where the people on earth decide, let's build a, a temple, a big old tower, to the heavens so that we could kind of be like God. And God says, not so fast. And so what God does is he confuses the people and they all start speaking different languages so they can't talk to each other, so they can't build the building, I guess. And that's the story of Babel. Kind of a weird little story. But that's if you were a Jewish person very familiar with your Old Testament, that's probably the story you would think about when you read about languages all coming back together. And so in some ways, I think the story of Pentecost is like a reversal of, Bab- of the Tower of Babel because Babel is when all the languages get confused and people go out speaking different languages. The, the, the moment of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, 
is like everyone is speaking the same language, but the, the one speaking it is this miraculous thing where they speak a language and other people understand it in their own language. So that's probably how an ancient Jewish person would understand that. And so our question for today is how should we interpret Pentecost for today? Okay, so we've just done maybe good exegesis and hermeneutics. We've asked the right questions of how would ancient people understand this this passage. And so now we as Christians, New Life Church, 2011, Mills Sunday School, can I think appropriately now ask the question, okay, how should we interpret it for today? And I want to give you some vocabulary words because I think there's, there's kind of two ways of interpreting it, at least the way I see this big picture way that I see. And the words that are on your notes, they're big, long words, and I know you love big, long words, and so that's why I give them to you. Um, the word ecclesiology, which, does anyone know what that word means? Study of the church. Yes, study of the church. Um, that's ecclesiology. And the other word, pneumatology, does anyone know what that means? Study of the Holy Spirit, yes. And so may, maybe some of you know that word because like a pneumatic tool is like a tool that works with air. And air uh, in this Hebrew understanding is like wind. And wind is the same word, ruach, as the spirit. And so pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. And so sometimes I think there's this, as we interpret Pentecost for today, I think there's two lines of thinking or two big ideas that should we interpret the book of Acts and the story of Pentecost ecclesiologically or pneumatologically? Should we interpret it? Of course we should interpret it both ways, that it's, it's, it's about the church and it's about the Holy Spirit. But which one is the one we should talk about first? Which one is the bigger picture idea? And so I want you to kind of discuss that in a roundabout way. And, and what I want you to discuss is sometimes charismatic churches, and if you don't know what that term means, well, we're, we're about to talk about it, so get into a group that seems like they know what they're talking about. But charismatic churches often, or Pentecostal churches, often translate or interpret the story of the book of Acts, chapter 2, Pentecost, as very pneumatologically, that this is the Holy Spirit, it's all about the Holy Spirit, and how God gave the Holy Spirit, and that gift of the Holy Spirit. Whereas non-charismatic churches usually tend to understand the, the, the book of Acts, chapter 2, Pentecost, as more ecclesiologically, that this is all about the church, and how God empowered the church, and the gift that God gave the church. And so I want you to be familiar with those terms because we're going to talk about them. And so the discussion question is, what's the, what are the differences of style between uh, in theology and, uh, excuse me, in th- let me just start over. What are the differences of style and theology of a charismatic and non-charismatic church? And so if you know what those terms mean, um, go ahead and discuss style and theology of, of what's the difference between a charismatic and and a non-charismatic church. By the way, new life is charismatic. And so we would tend to lean towards charismatic understandings of style and theology um, and, and in some ways be maybe opposed or just separate ourselves from non-charismatic churches. So do you understand what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to get into groups of some sort, maybe list theological or style differences between charismatic and non-charismatic churches. Ready, get set, Go. 
Alright, if I could stop your conversations. Uh, sorry to interrupt. It sounds like they're, they're going well, and you're listing the differences of charismatic versus non-charismatic churches, both in style and theology, and I want to discuss that as, uh, as a group. We have some mics, but before that, I just wanted to get a bigger picture across Um, And so bear with me for a couple slides before we do discussion. And it's this idea that there's a black and white line between charismatic and non-charismatic churches. In fact, I even decided as I was preparing for the Mill Sunday School, which I usually takes about a week to prepare and think through things for a while, I was thinking through, okay, I'll make a division with with a line and we'll list stuff that charismatic churches do and then we'll list stuff that non-charismatic churches do and the line will be right there, nice and dark, and we could decide what is and what is not charismatic. And then I thought, you know, that's silly. There's there's a lot of overlap between charismatic churches and non-charismatic churches. It reminded me, in a way, if, if I decided to carry that out and to make this line and say, this is this and this is that, it reminded me of that scene in the movie uh, The Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams. Anybody like that movie? It's one of my favorite movies. There's that scene in the, in the, in the movie, you need to go see it, where they read the introduction of the, the literary poetry book, and it says, this is this way, and that is that way, and if you, if you think about poetry on a scale of um, the, the, the perfection and um, its influence, then you could realize how good the poem is on this X and Y axis, and, it, and, and he finally says, just rip that page out of the book, rip it out, rip out J. Evans Pritchard, PhD, his introduction, because that's crap, um, they rip it out, and, and in some ways, um, we can't make this black line, this white and black division between what a charismatic and a non-charismatic church is because there's lots of um, maybe gray area in between the differences between charismatic and non-charismatic. And the other idea I thought about is, is, is the idea of making a line between the two churches is, isn't that good for us to, to declare the differences and, and say we are this way, they are that way, we are right, they are wrong, because that's not about unity. And so I found the cheesiest picture I could um, representing unity of the church. It's a bunch of people holding hands around a, a globe and they're glowing or something. I don't know. Um, that represents unity of the church. But, it, but I, I realize the picture is cheesy, and sometimes the idea of church unity is cheesy, but it shouldn't be. Like Christ does call us to be one in, in mind and in spirit. And, and I hate it when churches make fun of each other or say that we've got it all right and they've got it all wrong, especially when it comes down to opinions or style. And it's like we should figuratively hold hands with other churches and say, we all believe in Jesus, that the Bible is the word of God. Let's, let's hold on to these things and, and, and forget some of our differences and come together. So that point being uh, up there, I thought was prefaced before our discussion. And, and then just going back to the idea that maybe the, the, the white of the, you know, is, is less white than we think and the black is, is more gray than we think. And maybe there's gray area in between the differences between a charismatic and a non-charismatic church. And then as a third, just like random side note, I'm not up here saying that that truth is relative and oh, whatever they believe and whatever you believe and whatever somebody else of another religion believes, it's all fine because it all fits into the gray area and there's no absolute truth. I would say, bull, there's, there is truth and there is things that are true and there is things that are false. 
but I'm saying within the context of Christendom and Christianity, um, there's a gray area between style and opinion. Is everybody cool now? You're cool. You look cool. So let's discuss very quickly if there was somebody at your group that had, here's a good difference between a charismatic and a non-charismatic church. Please be bold enough to get the attention of one of the either Mike dudes and uh, tell us all so that we could chat together. (gasps) Anybody? Bueller. Yes. Thank you for getting us started. That's, That's the... Most courageous person. Okay, um, just one of the basic differences that we talked about was just uh, the non-charismatic churches tend to believe that miracles and a lot of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a.k.a. tongues and interpretation of tongues, stopped with the early church. Yes, yeah, the idea of cessationalism. Did any of you in your groups mention that? The, the idea of the gifts stopping at some point. And a lot of charismatic, I've been to lots of charismatic churches. I've been to lots of non-charismatic churches on, on all ends of the spectrum, I think. I don't know, maybe there's other spectrums. But I, I do know that, that many non-charismatic churches just say, listen, the, the miracles that happen in the Bible, they don't seem to be happening today. So at some point, let's say with the death of the apostles, the gifts stopped. And, and maybe there's some gray area in between like non-charismatic and charismatic churches because some churches that are non-charismatic will still pray for healings. Uh, does anybody know that, of a non-charismatic church that prays for sick people? Yeah, I know of lots of churches that, that lift up prayers for the sick people. Um, but, but maybe they, they do it in a different way. They maybe pray for that the doctors might be given wisdom as they are in surgery or that, that, that God, you would just heal them miraculously. I, I don't know. Maybe it's a little different. Maybe it's not. Um, but it seems like that, that, that division that both charismatic and non-charismatic churches tend to pray for sick people. That's what we're supposed to do. What, other, what else? Anybody want to chat? No? Yes. Way up here in the front. Get to him quickly, quickly. And then anybody else that has something to say, get ready. Right. One of the things that I was mentioning over here in my group is I actually grew up in a liturgical church. Okay. So a non-charismatic church. um, Being the Nazarene church in denomination period. Um, In fact, just before I even came up here, I was a part of a church that was progressing from liturgy to charismatic. They're kind of like in that gray area. And right now they have people leaving the church because of the charismatic point. The problem with most of the lines charismatic, it isn't that they believe it doesn't happen anymore. It's more or less they're afraid of the speaking in tongues. Yeah. That if they speak in tongues on stage or they speak in tongues, period, they might be viewed as witchcraft or in a cult. Yeah. Which is what Paul even pointed out. Yeah. So you're charismatic. They're more free to believe what the spirit does and what the spirit's moving. As more of the liturgy, the non-charismatic, they're like with their head stuck up their butt, afraid of letting the spirit move and do what he needs to do. Not literally, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. This idea that the the spirit moving is is something charismatics enjoy, whereas if you're coming from a non-charismatic church. We as charismatics might seem like, oh, that's that's they're they're stuck in the mud, or they're 
they're, they're stuck in cement, they're, they don't want to move according to the Spirit, but they would say, you know, no, we're doing it the way, that the traditional way, we're doing it the way that's full of order and, and a way that is, is based upon the Word of God and we're not going to budge from that because we do have the Word of God with us and we have tradition, and so we're doing it the way that is for sure. Whereas sometimes, you know, they could say, well, sometimes you charismatics get off on a, on a rabbit trail and, and go the wrong direction claiming that it's God, and then maybe at the end of that rabbit trail you find out that oh this isn't really what god is doing and it's wrong and then it's like well we don't want to mess with that we don't want to you know suffer the church to a wrong direction that that you think is the spirit when maybe it's not the spirit and then and something else you mentioned was the gift of tongues which that is like the gift and we'll, we'll talk about this next week as we talk about the pneumatical interpretation of second acts and and pentecost of, of that being the gift that is often very scary for non-charismatics or people that are like, I've never spoken in tongues. What is that? That seems so weird. I can get my mind around praying for a sick person. I can get my mind around, oh, prophecy. Like, oh, you think God is leading us in this direction. You may or may not call that prophecy, but it kind of is. I can get my mind around that. I can get my mind around praying for miracles. But the idea of speaking in tongues is just weird and crazy and, and maybe has cult tendencies or weird stuff tendencies. And so that is the gift that sometimes is is the pinpointed gift that's either the marking line between charismatics and non-charismatics. But um, but yeah, the, so let, let's um, move on from there and ask this question once again. How should we interpret uh, Pentecost for today? Oh, and by the way, before we get into this, I was going to say um, there's cue cards like three by fives on all the tables. If you have questions, I thought next week we're going to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the pneumatical interpretation of Acts chapter 2. So if you have questions, you could write them on the cards. And as you're leaving, there's, there's a top hat in the, on the back table back there. And if you want to put questions in there, uh, you could do it anonymously or you could leave your name on it to get credit for a genius question. But we'll try to get to those questions next week. And so write them on the 3x5 cards or any piece of paper. If your group runs out of 3x5 cards, that's fine. Um, and so write down questions. We'll talk about them next time. Questions specifically dealing with charismatic stuff because that's what we'll talk about next time. But I thought, how should we, going back to the, the, the PowerPoint here, how should we interpret Pentecost for today? I think before we get into the pneumatical interpretation, the Holy Spirit interpretation of Acts chapter 2, I think the bigger picture is the church and the church being born. And so today we're going to talk about the ecclesiological, ecclesiological, Logical. That's a hard one. Cles. Man, I'm struggling. Cleseological. Man, I'm struggling. Whatever. The churches. The the idea that it's the ecclesiology. That's how we're going to interpret Pentecost. And so next week we'll get into the more pneumatical interpretation of Pentecost. But today, uh, on your notes, there's three points. Birth of the church, the new temple, the great commission that I hopefully we have time to talk about uh, with the ten minutes that we have left. So the birth of the church is, that's what happens at Pentecost, is the church is getting commissioned to be the church. And, and I, as... As some of you know, Erica and I are pregnant. And by the way, we find out, hopefully, if we're having a boy or girl on this Wednesday. Um, I've been, like, researching 
pregnancy and birth and um, you know, fun stuff about child rearing and breastfeeding and all these fun things. And, and the, the process of being born, which all of you at some point were born, is a pretty shack, shocking, like natural phenomenon. And so I thought I'd put up uh, some of the pictures that I've seen of, of childbirth. And so this is for uh, mature audiences only, please. Here's a full frontal view of a baby being born. If you're listening via podcast and have no idea what the picture is that we're putting up uh, and you just heard everyone laugh, I, I don't know why they're laughing. That's a baby being born. Um, so you'll have to uh, ask somebody that was here what the picture was. Um, anyways, uh, the birth of the church is this interesting thing. Uh, and I put a quote by Eugene Peterson on the back of our notes for today. The sweet quote of the day is by Eugene Peterson, the author of the message. There's a picture of him. He's, he's like 80 years old now. He just wrote a book called uh, The Pastor. It's his memoir. It's his, the last book that he's, he's going to write. And he, he wrote it. I just read it last week. And in there, he gives this quote. He says, here's something. Despite all my years of reading the Bible, and so he's 80 years old. He's had a lot more reading the Bible experience than I have. In fact, he translated the Bible from the ancient Greek and a Hebrew into common day English. We have that Bible today as the message. So pretty cool. And so despite all my years of reading the Bible, that's a lot of years, I've never noticed the way Luke set the two birth stories, the birth of Jesus, the birth of the church, in almost exact parallel. And so here, Luke, we know he is the author of the book of Luke, as well as the book of Acts, sets up these two stories. Here's two pictures, the the birth of the church and Pentecost and the birth of Jesus and the nativity scene and the manger, etc. And some of those details are that, you know, there's there's anticipation and and hope for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the church. And then there's not a moment in which... It happens, but it's more of a process that can be symbolized by the moment the tongues uh, come come down upon the apostles, or the moment when Jesus is born and placed into a manger. Um, there's foretelling, anticipation. John the Baptist is mentioned in both of these stories, and then the Spirit descends in both of these stories as a culmination of the event in the, in the Book of Acts and the birth of the church. It's tongues of fire and the Spirit descending upon the disciples in Jesus. Jesus' case, it's he's born, but then his ministry is, is started when the Holy Spirit descends, not like fire in the, in the Pentecost, but as a dove when he gets baptized by John the Baptist. And so there's parallels all over the place here with, with the birth of Jesus and the birth of church. And I just thought that was very interesting how Luke is setting up this story because the rest of the book of Acts, by the way, is going to be how heaven comes to earth and how the church acts in the world and, and where we go and what we do. And so the next point, the new temple, um, and this, this point I found was just fascinating and interesting. The idea that the temple in the Old Testament, originally before the stone building, was this uh, just a tent, a tabernacle, a place of meeting. And in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, this little room was what? Do you know? Indiana Jones found it in one of the first Indiana Jones movies. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, this this box that on the top of it had angels and their wings, the cherubim, and, and on the seat, the mercy seat, guess who sat there? God, yeah. 
That's where heaven and earth met. And that's kind of hard for us to get our minds around as Christians and post-Christianity and Jesus' resurrection, this idea that, oh, God is in us and God is everywhere. But in the Old Testament, the understanding was God was actually in the temple. That's where he literally was. And of course, he's everywhere and knows everything, but that's where he was, on the mercy seat. That's where he hung out. And then, of course, uh, David and then Solomon built a temple out of stone. Here's a picture of that, an artist interpretation at least. And so that's where the Holy Spirit, that's where God sat. That's where heaven meet earth right there in the temple. And so the idea of the church is that um, that we take the place of the temple, that we are the temple in the New Testament understanding of that's where heaven meets earth. That's where God actually lives in us as Christians with the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so we are the new temple. And that's a very interesting understanding. And and the book of Acts, um, I think, really gets into that. In Acts chapter 6, verse uh, 7, it says, uh, just this random verse that says, priests, um, a large number of priests, became obedient to the Christian faith. And, and this idea that priests, the ones who knew where God lived, the ones that were managing the temple and the sacrifices, they became Christians because they realized that God was no longer living in the temple, but he was living in those people that, that were Christ followers. And this Holy Spirit inside of them is this new temple. And so a final point, the Great Commission. Many of you know that this is the passage in which Jesus says, uh, you will be my witnesses. You will go out and baptize and, and make believers and disciples. Um, and so the, the verse in Acts is the passage we read already this morning, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Everybody say witnesses. Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that, that word witnesses, if, if you know Greek or a little bit of Greek or have a Greek, uh, some notes in your Bible, maybe it says that that word witnesses is the word martyr. And, and so you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And, and today, of course, a martyr in English means someone who dies for a cause. And so in the beginning, this early church being a one that would be killed for your faith became so synonymous with just being a witness that today our very word uh, in the Greek witness or martyr means to be killed for your faith. And something interesting else here, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, could be, it's just the eschaton, the, the end, the last things of the earth, could be a literal place, like you'll be my witnesses all over the physical earth, or it could be you'll be my witnesses until the end of the earth, like the time in which Jesus comes back. And either interpretation, it kind of goes back and forth sometimes, um, whether it's the place of the earth, all over the earth, or whether it's the time, all over the, all over the earth. I'll let you read the passage and the context in which that passage is for your own opinion on that interpretation. But the idea that we need to go out, that is our call, our commission <clears throat> as Christians to spread the good news. And this guy... Um, I heard an interview with him. His name is Jonathan Sachs. He uh, is a Jewish chief rabbi over Great Britain, and he's a great speaker and kind of a representative of the Jewish faith 
in, uh, in Europe and, and Great Britain. He was in an interview one time, and a Christian asked him, this Jewish scholar and speaker, representative, you know, what do you think about us as Christians? And this Jewish scholar, his name's Jonathan Sachs, there's a picture of him. He responded by saying, well, you know, you did get something right. He said, you, you did what we never did. You did what we were supposed to do, but didn't do. He said, you Christians went and carried the message to all of the earth. You went and carried that message and spread it and made it acceptable to all people. Whereas we, as the Jewish nation, had the message. And he said, we just kind of sat on it. We didn't bring it out into the world like you all did. And so he commends us as Christians as taking the message. And he would, of course, disagree as a Jewish person that Jesus was God. But he said, you took the message that was given to us of God and the good news of salvation, and you spread it all over the world, and we kind of sat on it. And so here's a picture of Paul preaching. Uh, This is actually a painting of him preaching in Athens, that famous passage that we will get to in the book of Acts where Paul speaks to the Athenians. Paul then goes to other places, Corinthians, Thessalonica, all over the Mediterranean, spreading the good news. And what's so amazing is sometimes he gets to these places and he finds Christians that were already there because maybe they were a part of Pentecost, the 3,000 that were added that day of Pentecost, and they went out and they heard the story of Jesus and were saved and had the Spirit living and dwelling inside of them. And so to conclude today... um, I think the, the story of our birth as a church is this idea that, you know, I think of a, a, a passage like First uh, Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, this idea that, that God has chosen to make known um, the glorious riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you all, the, the hope of glory. And the you there in the Greek is plural. That when we come together as a church, that when the church was born on Pentecost and they were all together receiving the Holy Spirit, that that is, that is us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so once again, we end like we ended last week, that the book of Acts kind of points back to us as readers, as Christians saying, we are invited, we are being called into the story to go, to, to realize that the Holy Spirit is in us and to be messengers, to be witnesses like those that were in the book of Acts. And so let's pray today. Let's, let's close knowing that, that we are a part of the story of the church. And so Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you that Holy Spirit, you are inside of us, living inside of us, giving, giving us direction, giving us authority to go. God, would you empower us to, to live lives worthy of the calling. Would you empower us as, as Mill Sunday Schoolers to, to proclaim the message that Christ is in us and that is good news for the world. God, we do love you. We praise you. We go out of here knowing that, that we are going out as a church, as a people, like, like those that were uh, born a, and as a part of the church in Pentecost. God, we connect with that history as a part of our history as Christians. God, we're so grateful to you. We love you. God, we do praise you this morning. And everybody said, Amen. All right, friends. Go in peace. We'll see you next week as we talk about charismatic pneumatological interpretations. And if you have questions, put them in the top hat as you leave. Peace.